Hello and welcome to Reactive's Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evikiori and this week we are discussing the finances of the COP27. Are the developed countries ready to fund the developing countries who are the ones currently facing the grave effects of climate change? This year, money will feature high on the agenda of the COP27 summit, where world leaders are meeting in Egypt. Egypt, who is the second developing nation where COP was ever held, is pushing the needs of developing countries to the top of the COP27 agenda, with a focus on climate finance, climate adaptation and loss and damage. Until now, the discourse on the climate change has been focusing on climate mitigation, which has been the success story for the developed countries. Climate mitigation is calling on all countries to take drastic action to cut emissions. And developed and developing countries are put on the same scale, even though the latter are the ones who are experiencing the majority of climate-related disasters. But what has happened so far during the previous 26 COPs? We are finding ourselves at the 27th COP, which means that we are looking back at almost three decades of COPs, of global climate negotiations. Hanne Knappe is the head of Climate Action and Green Transition team of the Centre of Africa-Europe Relations. I think overall the COP remains the world's best hope or the best platform for progress on climate action because it brings together right now more than 100 heads of states, uh, representatives from the private sector, civil society, youth delegations, minority groups, and so on. So the idea is for all these different actors, all these different groups to have a voice. Of course, if we listen to the youth leaders, this comes with limitations. But still, there is only one platform that brings together so many people from all over the world who want to fight for climate action. Um, if we look back at three decades of COPs, we have seen, of course, the famous Kyoto Protocol from the 90s. More recently, there is the Paris Agreement with the idea of limiting global warming beyond two degrees, ideally to stay within 1.5 degrees Celsius um, warming. But what is a problem is that there is no real punishment systems for countries who are not meeting these commitments. There is nothing like a global green court. So it's largely voluntary um, based. And at the same time, despite three decades almost of COPs, emissions are continuing to rise. You can see that in the most recent UN emissions gap report. So why is COP27 crucial for the future of climate change? Um, we are in difficult times and many people are expecting the climate agenda to, to collapse. MEP Peter Lise represents Germany with the group of the European People's Party. It's important that at COP27, the world proves that climate is still a priority and the European Union makes its contribution um, to, to show everybody that investing in climate-friendly technology is the way forward. And while the way forward is investing on climate, world leaders will have to look backwards this time and discuss how they will implement agreements and plans decided during the previous years. 
For this COP27, the Egyptian presidency is using on uh, the hashtag together for implementation. So the idea is really to discuss implementation of this Paris Agreement, how to move forward. There is also a lot of focus on adaptation, on water, on agriculture. There are three food-related pavilions for side events at COP27. So also building climate resilient food systems is really high on the agenda. And I think the most important points and and what will determine success of this 27th COP is finance and, and financial commitments. And um, related to this are, of course, the growing calls for disaster compensation, uh, known in the technical term as loss and damage. And this has finally really made it to the agenda. So discussions will really focus on loss and damage. The concept of loss and damage isn't new. It has been on the agenda for the world leaders since 1991, with developing countries and small island states pressing for funds to support the more vulnerable. The start was done by the Pacific island Vanuatu, which was the first one to propose a plan for high-emitting countries to funnel money towards those impacted by the sea level rise. So why is it that this year loss and damage will be center stage at COP27? The needs are huge. Um, research shows that, for example, by 2040, the cost of loss and damage for developing countries alone could reach one trillion US dollars. By 2050, um, UN reports says that losses linked to climate hazards in Africa could reach 50 billion US dollars per year. So the needs are huge. It's very important to have this discussion. What we see so far is that the overwhelming majority of climate finance has gone to especially mitigation, but also adaptation, a bit less than mitigation, but that's a separate discussion. And um, so far, loss and damage needs are being addressed uh, through mechanisms for mostly disaster response, so humanitarian assistance, reconstruction loans from multilateral development banks, also a bit grants and bilateral support, but this is all far below the actual needs. So what is uh, the discussion will be really about how to uh, mobilize additional finance flows for loss and damage. And um, of course, we have seen this year uh, the floods in Pakistan causing the deaths of more than 1,700 people and um, also in the Horn of Africa, extreme droughts uh, leading to starvation of more than 22 million people. So um, these, the, the numbers are extremely shocking. So it's really important to have this. Now, um, last year during COP26 in, in Glasgow, there was already a discussion and the G77, so the group of the 77 most vulnerable countries together with China, um, they have a negotiating group and they were proposing to establish a new financial facility for loss and damage. And this uh, caused some tension during the negotiations because the US and also the EU uh, did not want to sign an, uh, an agreement on this financial facility. It was said that they needed to have more discussions on how exactly this would look like and how the money would be used. Um, and, and so, and, and really to understand well, how do you define loss and damage, because it should only be loss and damage, of course, that is being caused by climate change, not by, by uh, human activities. And Hannah, you have experienced firsthand what loss and damage looks like. Could you maybe help us uh, paint a clearer image on what uh, do these terms describe exactly? 
I can say that um, more than 10 years ago, I was in Vietnam for, for work, uh, for, for research on climate change and uh, working near the coastline. And there I've seen what loss and damage means in reality. So there were the houses that were built near the coast. They were completely, like literally falling into the sea um, because the, the sea level was rising by almost one meter a year which is, of course, extremely shocking. And climate change um, was, the, was the cause for that in many cases. I think um, the, the island of Tuvalu is the best and most used example of, of loss and damage because the island is completely disappearing. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, also the floods in Pakistan. So these are um, people are completely losing all forms of livelihood. So that is that is loss and damage. But as I already mentioned, it's really important to um, to to define to to understand loss and damage as as a uh, consequence of climate impacts because there are sometimes there is a construction construction done also near the near near coasts um, for near hotels um, to keep the beach clean they are creating some kind of wave breakers and that can then lead to um, erosion, coastal erosion a bit further. And so that is also a loss and damage, but not caused by climate change. So it's very important to have this understanding. So now um, within the UNFCCC, so the global climate negotiations, there is currently no specific percentage of international climate finance uh, agreed that should be assigned to loss and damage. I think that will be part of the discussions now. Um, and, and so in the whole negotiation process so far, loss and damage has uh, been separated from the actual finance discussions on mitigation and adaptation. Um, what we see now is that um, countries, developed countries, have started to, um, to commit funding for loss and damage. Um, just yesterday, um, Austria has promised to uh, commit um, uh, funding for loss and damage. Uh, we saw already the commitment by Belgium, Denmark, Germany, uh, Scotland. So together, these are several millions being pledged for loss and damage. That's really good. However, at the same time, what we should not uh, forget is that the global north, let's say these uh, countries have committed to mobilize 100 billion US dollars per year by uh, 2020 through to 2025 to address um, climate needs in the global south but this um, target has not been met so climate finance i mean commitments can be made but it's always very difficult to meet them and we have to make sure that the same is not going to happen for loss and damage for which this financing is so urgent And it seems like commitment to goals, but also funding, are of paramount importance. But talking the talk and walking the walk are two different things. In 2019, developed countries promised $100 billion by 2020. However, that sum hasn't been delivered to the poorest countries yet. So what is to happen now? So first of all, uh, the European Union delivered a lot. So when the 100 million is not uh, yet there, it's due to other parts of the world, United States, Japan, Australia, they, they have to do their bit. But anyhow, I'm fighting as a rapporteur for the ETS for more international 
climate finance. You know, national finance ministers will get uh, much more money because the price of the ETS is increasing. And part of this money should also go to African countries, to other poor countries to uh, cope with the challenges of climate change. It's very important that this this um, 100 billion goal is being met according to um, the EU. So also you can see that in the most recent EU uh, Council position for COP27, they have said that uh, the 100 billion goal will be met in 2023. Of course, this remains to be seen. And um, why this is so important is that uh, the, the climate finance gap in Africa alone is 108 billion US dollars each year. And this comes off, on top of the growing economic shocks from the COVID pandemic and the war in Ukraine and all the socioeconomic repercussions for African countries. Um, within this 100 billion, the idea is to allocate 50% to adaptation and 50% to mitigation. So this uh, on top of whether they can meet the goal itself, that's another layer um, of uh, difficulty and tension. Overall, more finance has always gone to mitigation, so to renewable energy projects, which is also, of course, very important to emission reduction, but less to, um, to adaptation support, especially for the ones who need it the most. In the context of Africa, these are the smallholder farmers. They have not really benefited so much for, for, from uh, support for adaptation and resilience building in rural areas. So uh, my point is beyond reaching the goal, the 100 billion, we should also question how can this, the, the available funding be used in the most effective way, making sure that it's reaching really the poorest of the, the poorest uh, farmers and, 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 other, and, and people in, in uh, these rural areas in Africa and in other developing countries, of course. You're listening to Euractiv's Been the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on euractive.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge in other fields, you can listen to our tech podcast and our agri-food podcast. And if you have any comments or ideas, you can drop a line at podcast at euractive.com. And one of the tricky parts of funding is making sure that the funds will reach the right hands and will be distributed to the ones that are in need. At COP27, developed countries agreed to at least double finance for adaptation. In numbers, this means that roughly 40 billion euros would be collected. Now at COP27, developed countries must also specify how will they ensure this finance reaches those who need it. It is important that it really reaches the right people you know some ngos are crying out more money more money uh, but this should not go to the governments uh, where it sometimes disappears in deep channels but we are in favor of structures that really assure that the money is coming to the poor people uh, in those countries Although responsibility weighs all countries and all citizens, according to MP Lisa, the responsibility for climate change should be distributed differently and should be based on how much the countries contributed to emissions and pollution. Generally speaking, every member of uh, the United Nations needs to take its responsibility. And a long time, the problem was that China was formally seen 
as a developing countries under UNFCCC, uh, so international climate rules. And we have to see that every ton of CO2 that is emitted harms the climate. So if we do not include these big emitters like China, we have a problem. And um, if we want to meet the Paris target, uh, even if Europe would stop emitting, but others would increase their emissions, then we have a challenge. But we have to, to, to have a differentiated responsibility. So the responsibility of Bangladesh is much different than the responsibility of European countries, because Bangladesh is only starting to grow. They have a, a few historic emissions and they suffer a lot. So we should treat them different. But also here we should enable these countries to skip the, um, the time of fossil fuels and help them immediately to go to renewable energies, because that is the future anyhow. And we should help them not to pollute like we did in the past, but do the steps faster than, than we did. But they cannot do it without support. So that's why this uh, hundred billion are so important. And that's why also bilateral partnerships in this regard are so important. There are many good examples with numerous countries, not only in the EU, but also globally, trying to come up with projects to fight climate change. Many uh, EU member states that have really wonderful uh, climate projects in developing countries, um, but still, I think overall it remains scattered with projects here and there. Um, and, and also the, the issue of um, adaptation finance, it's, uh, it remains a big problem and making sure that it reaches really the local level. Now, um, beyond what, um, what the EU or EU member states or developed countries are doing, we have some good examples also within, um, within Africa. So um, the African Development Bank, for example, has um, set up a mechanism to mobilize much more adaptation finance from the private sector, also the African private sector. So we should also look there for good examples. Um, now, beyond uh, projects, I think um, it is important to that also, um, like I think public finance from the EU, from member states will never be able, that's the reality, to meet the real needs of countries in the global south. So it's also important that countries there mobilize their own domestic resources and do their own part. And here, Bangladesh is a really good example. Bangladesh is using 7.5% of its own GDP for climate, and they have managed to set up an impressive warming system for their country, showing that good governance and using funds properly and making sure they reach their destination could lead to long-term solutions. Good governance within countries, that will also ensure that climate finance reaches really the local level and the people who need it the most. This issue of access to climate finance, also access by women organizations to climate finance. Women to, to be able women should be able to to uh, benefit from grants to have to um, be able to have to get loans also for environment projects and so on for their own investments in, in climate resilience, agriculture. This is also very important. So it really goes beyond beyond good, uh, beyond good projects by development partners. There is also a role, of course, to be played by um, countries in the global south themselves. 
A number of lawsuits in the developed countries have pushed governments to take more immediate action or at least to add plans to tackle climate change on their political agendas. There was in, in the Netherlands um, the so-called Uganda case, um, and uh, so the, his his big um, his question, together with Friends of the Earth, um, he built a coalition. His question was um, to order the Dutch government to immediately take action against climate change and reduce um, uh, CO2 emissions by at least 25% by the end of 2020. So that's and then also uh, for Shell specifically. He um, was uh, requesting also, I believe, 45% or so by uh, the in the coming um, the coming years. So this has impacted, of course, also the Dutch um, climate policy, and there were also similar lawsuits in uh, Germany that triggered the government to pass um, a new climate action law um, that brings the neutrality target forward to 2045. Uh, via reductions of at least 65% in 2030. The 65% is much more than the EU's climate target, uh, fit for 55. So there the idea is to reduce 55% um, of emissions by 2030. So in the case of Germany, this is at least 65%. So you can see that these lawsuits in countries lead to more ambitious climate action within countries. So in my own country, in Belgium, there has also been a court case against uh, the government for uh, more ambitious emission targets, but this has not been uh, successful, unfortunately. So what can we expect from this COP? Well, I'm going to uh, COP27 next week. And to be honest, I'm going with mixed feelings. Um, so the what we know is that the COP27 takes place against the backdrop of major geopolitical tensions, um, largely caused, of course, by the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Um, and so this is, is putting pressure on the negotiations, also on the finance negotiations. We saw that already in some um, EU member states, um, more funding now is going to um, activities related to dealing with the repercussions of um, the Ukraine war, for example, the, the higher energy prices within countries. So this, this will um, unavoidably have implications for climate finance commitments of these countries. Um, and of course, I looked at uh, COP27 through a Europe-Africa lens. Um, and uh, we see that Europe-Africa climate diplomacy has really weakened in recent years. Uh, the EU has also um, changed a few times in position when it comes to natural gas, coal, nuclear power. So this um, has led to accusations of hypocrisy by African countries that are still struggling to finance their own fossil fuel projects. So all of this um, together makes the discussions and the negotiations not only between Europe and Africa, but also more broadly between all parties, especially Global South versus Global North, makes it uh, very tricky. And as, as discussed now during our conversation, um, this will have implications for the most important question around climate finance. Although finances and loss and damage will be the most notable issues, we should not forget mitigations, since previous deals and previous actions aren't enough anymore. I would also hope for a progress on mitigation. It's very clear that what uh, the parties had committed 
in Glasgow is not enough to achieve the Paris target. So not to speak about 1.5, but we are well above two degrees and we should be well below two degrees. So more is necessary. Europe is again leading the way. We will increase our ambition. Uh, we will not bring only 55%, but at least 57 in the legislation that uh, we are just discussing and we are concluding hopefully this week. There is an increase of the ambition, but we should put much more pressure on others like China uh, to even increase their ambition. And MEP Lise, on a more personal note, what would be the message to keep from the COP negotiations and uh, fight against climate change? Every bit that we do, every ton of CO2 that we save is important. Climate change is a huge, huge issue. It's the biggest challenge of our generation, but it's never black and white. It's always do the best you can. And every ton of CO2 that we save is good, but there is not a thing like if we uh, have um, 1.6 degrees, the world will go down. Um, the 1.5 degrees is a reasonable target and it's important to, to, to do whatever we can, but not give the impression that everything is lost if we don't solve the problem in Egypt. It's a marathon and, and we need to fight for it for more decades, I guess. Thank you very much. I am Evikiori and this was Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Visit Euractiv for the latest news and if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do so on your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening. <laughs>